Thank you, everybody. Um, while I'm getting set up, I have a question for you all. Have you ever felt special? Uh, maybe you felt special because of uh, something you did, or maybe um, where you were from, where you were born, or uh, the family you were born into. And so raise your hand. Have, have you ever had that feeling or have, have that thought sometime in your life? What about, um, have you ever suddenly questioned that and all of a sudden, oh, maybe I'm not special in that way that I thought I was? Well, tonight, I have the awesome privilege of trying to overview these three chapters for us. And what I want to lead off with about this book, or these three chapters, um, well, many Christians carry around their Bible as if it were a box of loose puzzle pieces. And they'll, they'll take out a verse here and there, maybe a chunk of verses, um, and maybe they put together a few puzzle pieces and they, they take it out and see how, how cool it is, how pretty it is. Maybe they understand the gospel and a few other themes of scripture, but for the most part, their Bible is just a loose collection of cool things. Well, these three chapters in many ways are like the edge pieces to the jigsaw puzzle of the Bible. And the more you understand the Bible, the more you understand these three pa- these three chapters, but the reverse is definitely true. The more you understand these three chapters, the more the entire Bible makes sense and the easier it is to fit all the puzzle pieces of scripture together and see God's magnificent whole. So let's talk let's do a little recap and talk about the context of these three chapters. Um the theme of Romans is summed up in verses, uh, in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, first for, uh, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And so, Paul's burden is to reveal the righteousness of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we could summarize the book of Romans this way. Uh, The first section talks about the bad news, condemnation. All are guilty before God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the second part is the good news, the beginning of the good news, that we can be justified freely uh, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ where Jesus saves us from the penalty of sin. And then the next section talks about sanctification or how Jesus saves us from the power of sin in our lives. And then the last section you guys just covered in chapter 8 is about glorification, how Jesus will one day save us from the presence of sin, where we'll be resurrected in glorified bodies and he will renew all of creation. And the section I'm going to cover tonight is what we could call the vindication of God. And if you don't know what the word vindication means, it just means Paul is going to prove that what God and how God has done everything is right. And so we're going to see God vindicated in how he's dealt with Israel and the Gentiles. And then the next, the the last section of the book of Romans 
it, we could call mobilization, where, okay, in view of all the mercies of God, what should we do and how should we act uh, because of that? And, and one of Paul's purposes in writing this is all about trying to harmonize the, the Jews and the Gentiles that make up this church in Rome, because um, the situation in Rome is, is one of tension between the Jewish minority in the church and the Gentile majority. And so I want you to guys, guys to imagine for a second, see if I can paint this picture for you. Imagine you're a Jew, and all your life you've grown up with the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, and you've understood that you are part of the chosen people of God. You are part of an elect nation. You are special. And wow, Messiah has come. And he was crucified, but he rose again, and he has saved me from my sins. And I've joined this new body of believers called the church. But wait, most of my nation has rejected Jesus. They're not following Jesus, right? And all of a sudden, I find myself, I'm in the minority in this body of believers called the church. And the vast majority is the Gentiles. And God seems to be doing a, a miraculous work among the Gentiles all throughout the Roman Empire. And so I'm wondering, what, what about Israel? What's going on with Israel? But then imagine for a second you're a Gentile, and most of you are Gentiles, but put yourself back in the first century. You've, been, you've accepted this Jewish Messiah. He saved me from the paganism of my nation. And I've joined this amazing new um, body of believers called the church. But wait, uh, didn't he make a lot of promises to Israel? And I know that in chapter 8, Paul explained that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And nothing can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But So I've got these amazing promises, but didn't he make a lot of promises to Israel? And so this question is on our minds as we come to chapter 9. What about Israel? God seems to be rejecting Israel and blessing Gentiles. Is God finished with Israel? Is God righteous to do this to Israel? Aren't they God's chosen people? Is he breaking his promises to Israel? Then how can I trust God's promises to us? And so let's dive into chapter 9 with that question on our minds. Paul starts off, I tell you the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing witness with me in the Holy Spirit. That I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. Who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the services of God, and the promises? Of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God? Amen. And so right off the bat, Paul says, look, I want you to know, first off, that I am a Jew, and I love my country. I love the Israelites, and I would... I would let myself be accursed if it could mean that they would all believe in Jesus. And he lists, he acknowledges that they have been blessed and they are a special people of God. And they've, they've had all these amazing blessings from God all throughout their history. And I want to focus in on two of them right here. The promises and the fathers. And there's one promise in particular, if you guys remember, 
the fathers mean Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And can you think of one promise in particular that is associated with them? God said to Abraham, I will make you a great nation and I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you and in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so keep that in mind as we move on. Okay, Paul says, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. And if there's one verse in these three chapters that's important to understand correctly, it's this one, so let me repeat this. But it is not that the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. So what is he talking about here? Well, he's saying that within Israel, there is a true Israel. And I want you to notice right off the bat that he's not talking about Gentiles here. It's just talking about Israel. And we know that because the context is limited by the phrase, for uh, they who are of Israel. And so he's saying here, that there is a true Israel within Israel, okay? And then he goes on, and, and, oh, I'm hitting the wrong button, sorry. Okay, and then he goes on and he says, nor are they all children because there's the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. So what is he saying here? He's saying, you, you just because you were born a Jew doesn't make you the people of God. It doesn't make you a true Israelite. In the same way, just because you were a son of Abraham doesn't make you a son of the promise. Because God chose Isaac over Ishmael. And so just, just like Ishmael could not presume upon the promise given to Abraham, but God chose Isaac, neither can a Jew presume upon his lineage, just the fact that he was born a Jew, he can't presume upon the fact that he's a Jew uh, that God should bless him or that, um, or that he should have salvation. But a, a Jew could say, hey, I get it. I, um, it. It makes sense that God didn't choose Ishmael. He was the son of a slave woman. He was illegitimate. But then Paul goes on and says, even in the case of twins, because remember, Isaac and Rebekah had twin boys, Jacob and Esau. Even in the case of twins, before they were even born, God said the older will serve the younger. He was choosing Jacob over Esau. So even in the case of twins, Esau could not presume upon the lineage, upon being Isaac's son, to be a son of the promise. And so Paul's saying, this is your lineage and so if you're trusting in your lineage to be part of the people of God, um, you have to remember something, that the only reason you are a special people in the first place is the sovereign choice of God. And so God has a right to choose. If you, if you grant that God has a right to choose Jacob over Esau, then he has a right to choose people from within Israel. And not only that, but he has a sovereign right to choose to now bless Gentiles like he blessed Israel before. And Paul illustrates this point in the general principle, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. Um, and I want, before we move on from this section, I want you to notice a couple of things about these verses. This is the verse 
that Paul explains how God chose Jacob over Esau. And if we go back and see where Paul's quoting from, he's quoting from a passage in Genesis 25 where God says, two nations are in your womb and the older shall serve the younger. So Paul's not talking about choosing individuals here for salvation. He's talking about choosing the descendants of individuals as nations. And the next verse, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. This, Paul is saying, this proves, Paul is offering this verse as a proof that the choice was made. And if we go back to Malachi, we can see that the context is, God is looking back over centuries of Israel's history and saying, look at how I have loved you, Israel. And look at, compare yourself to Edom, the descendants of Esau, and it's as, it's as if I have hated them in contrast to how I have loved you. So he's proving that God chose Israel um, out of his sovereign will and not anything in their ancestors. As Paul says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? In other words, is God unrighteous for choosing now to show mercy on Gentiles? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. In other words, those to whom God shows mercy, it's not because of anything in them. God doesn't love you because you're lovable, right? God loves you because he is love, right? He loves out of his goodness, out of his good nature. All right. So the next section, Paul talks about God has a sovereign right to harden whom he will and to show mercy on whom he will. And we have to ask when we look at this section, uh, and we all do this, is God a good God? And this is a big question on Paul's mind as he goes through this chapter. Remember, this is, the, this is about the vindication of God. So... Um, lots of people have asked this question. We all do it at some point in our lives. Abraham asked this question. If you guys remember, when God was about to judge Sodom, Abraham asked God, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And Paul doesn't really answer this um, directly. He doesn't try to prove that everything that God does is right in this section. Because at some point, Paul knows that what God does is right by definition. And I don't mean that what is right or what is moral is arbitrary. God's sovereign will is not arbitrary. But what is right and what is good is grounded in God's unchanging nature, his own goodness. And so when we ask questions like, is God a good God? What we're really asking is, is God God? And, and so that's part of what Paul's saying in this section and I know, I know a lot of you want me to start talking about God's sovereignty and human free will um, here, but I'm not really going to do that except to say that the, the Bible doesn't, doesn't show those to be in, con in conflict, right? The Bible doesn't present those as a problem. And Paul doesn't either. What Paul, what Paul is interested in this section is to explain that God is just in using the rebellion of Israel to bless the Gentiles, right? And so this section, 
this section is not about God's righteousness in using the guilty how he... This section is about God's righteousness in using the guilty how he sees fit, not about God's making anyone guilty. This passage is not so much about the potter's power, but about the potter's righteousness to use that power. This, too, is about nations more than it is about individuals. And so the picture of the the potter and the clay is this. God holds two ruined pieces of clay in his hand, the Gentiles and Israel. And Paul is saying he has the right to take a piece from each lump of dough and fashion it into a vessel of mercy. And And he has the right to use the rebellion of the vessels of wrath to show his mercy on the vessels of mercy, uh, to show his, his great power and, mer- and love on the vessels of mercy. And so we could wrap up this section of chapter 9 by saying, okay, God can choose to show mercy to Gentiles at the expense of Israel. And we, we could then ask, but why has he done this? And from the human point of view, Paul answers this in the last part of chapter 9. What shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained righteousness, even the righteousness of faith? But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by works of the law. So he's saying, from the human point of view, what what separates merely a natural Israelite from a true Israelite is that one is seeking righteousness by works and the other is seeking righteousness by faith. So from the individual point of view, this is why God is rejecting the majority of Israel and only, and, um, and only having grace on a small portion. In chapter 11, we'll see the why from the divine plan point of view. And again, these chapters are, one of, the, one of the many reasons why these chapters are so amazing is that it shows both the human point of view and the divine point of view. And we could ask, how has God accomplished this? How has God set aside the majority of Israel in his plan? He goes on, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. In other words, Israel stumbled over the very fulfillment of their promise. And who is this? Yeah, that's right, the Sunday school answer. It's Jesus, right? He's the very fulfillment of their promise. And they didn't see, they didn't even see him for who he was when he showed up in their midst because they were so focused on their own self-righteousness and seeking righteousness by works of the law. We could summarize chapter 9 by saying, National election does not equal individual election. So just because you were born to an elect nation doesn't make you saved. And we could, we could apply this in our own lives. Just because you were born to a Christian family doesn't make you saved. Just because you go to church doesn't make you saved, right? I'm just going to summarize chapter 10 now by saying that this continues the, the thought of the end of chapter 9 about the stumbling stone. And Paul makes two points in chapter 10. The first point is that Israel should have known that salvation was by faith. It was there from the very beginning. And he quotes from Deuteronomy uh, right out of the law to prove that to them. Um, And then the second point he makes is that they may be set aside as a nation, but all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so preach to them. They still need the gospel, right? And so we could summarize chapter 10 by saying, 
national rejection doesn't equal individual rejection, right? All right, let's dive into chapter 11. <clears throat> Paul says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not, for I am also an Israelite. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And so he's saying that even now, even though the majority of Israel has been set aside, there is still believing Israelites. And I am one of them. Paul is one of them. And even today, this is true. There are Jewish Christians, and there always have been throughout history. And people forget about them a lot, but they've always been there. And that's the true Israel that Paul's talking about. Paul goes on, What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. God has spiritually blinded the majority of ethnic Jews, but he has elected a remnant. Is the Bible anti-Semitic? Is the New Testament anti-Semitic? Just yesterday, um, I couldn't believe this, I ran across an article in the Jerusalem Post where uh, a Jewish man basically made the case that the New Testament was anti-Semitic. And he cited all sorts of passages where the Jews are the bad guys. And he, he cited lots of passages uh, and, and, and claimed to say that God is finished with Israel and he's given the promises and blessings to Christians. Um, and there's lots we could say in response to that article. Um, but uh, even a lot of Christians down through the ages have, have agreed with that. And unfortunately, a lot of, anti a lot of Christians have been anti-Semitic. Um, but I, I will say wholeheartedly that the New Testament is not anti-Semitic. And Paul, that's why Paul is so emphatic at the beginning that he is a Jew and he loves the Jewish people. So let's jump into the last part of chapter 11. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So why has God done this from the divine point of view? Why has God set aside Israel? To show mercy to the Gentiles. As he says in verse 28, concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. They, the Jews, are enemies for your sake, the Gentiles. But in turn, God has done this so that he might provoke Israel to jealousy. So God has set aside the majority of Israel so that he might have mercy on the Gentiles and in turn provoke Israel to jealousy so that they would turn back to God. He goes on, now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For, for if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So what's Paul saying here? He's saying, can you imagine if, if Israel's rejection means all of these Gentiles are hearing the gospel and responding in faith, can you imagine how many more people around the world would believe if Israel as a whole turned to Jesus as their Messiah? What a witness that would be, right? Yeah. <clears throat> and Paul doesn't say that that will happen here. He's just saying how great it would be if that happened. And we have to ask, will this happen? All right, this brings us to the key metaphor of chapter 11, the olive tree. And if we had more time, I could take you through the text and show you in detail 
um, exactly what this metaphor is talking about, but I'm just going to diagram it for us tonight. Um, Paul, Paul refers to natural Israel or ethnic Jews as the natural branches to this olive tree. And he refers to the root of the olive tree as the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so if, um, if the root is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and what comes out of the root, the natural branches are ethnic Jewish people, what could we say is the olive tree? But the promise made to the patriarchs, the promise made to the fathers. Remember that promise way back in the beginning of chapter 9 that we talked about? This promise formed Israel as a nation. Um, the promise to Abraham is what, um, is what resulted in Isaac being born and Jacob being born and the Jewish people becoming a nation. And so keep that in mind as we go through this last bit of Romans chapter 11. Paul says, and if some of the branches were broken off and you Gentiles being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, so he's saying that Gentiles would represent these other wild olive trees. And he's saying that as God set aside Israel, he's cutting off the natural branches and he's grafting in wild branches in their place. And that's us Gentiles. And if some of the branches were broken off and you Gentiles being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. In other words... Right now, we Gentiles are receiving the blessing to all nations promised to Abraham. So remember that promise to Abraham said, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Well, Paul is saying in this metaphor, we are grafted into the promise given to Abraham, and we are receiving the blessing through Abraham. We have privileged access to the, the, the blessing of Abraham, which is Christ, which is the gospel, right? Um, and if so, do not boast against the branches. Remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. And remember, there's this tension in the church in Rome. And Paul wants harmony between Jews and Gentiles. And the Jews are saying, well, I'm, I'm better than you Gentiles. I'm special, right? And the Gentiles are saying, I'm better than you Jews because you've been, you've been set aside and, and I've <laughs> been let in, right? And he's saying, don't boast against the branches because, you know... It, the promise to Abraham is what you are benefiting from right now. So do not be prideful, but fear. Natural Israel was removed from favored nation status because of unbelief. If Gentiles do not continue to respond to the position that they're in, to respond to the gospel in faith, they too will be cut off. Remember, even this part of these three chapters is about nations, not individuals. So when, when Paul talks about cutting off branches from the olive tree, he's not talking about people losing their salvation, but he's talking about nations being removed from favored nation status or from a privileged position to blessing, right? And we have to ask, will this happen, right? If Gentiles don't continue in faith, they too will be cut off. Paul doesn't say that here, but we could turn to other parts of Scripture and we could say that, yes, indeed, someday this will happen where Gentiles will lose that privileged position that they're in. And they'll be removed from favored nation status, too. And if Israel does not continue in unbelief, God is able to graft them in again. 
After all, it's their own olive tree. Because Paul is saying, think about this. If God is able to graft in this wild olive tree into the promise made to Abraham, just think how easy it would be for God to put them back into their own olive tree. And we have to ask, will this happen? And this, this question has been burning in our minds for, for two and a half chapters. And Paul has only hinted at it so far. He's only said it would be wonderful if it did happen. But he hasn't answered that burning question in our minds. And finally, in verse 25, he can't take it anymore. And he says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In other words, the blindness on natural Israel won't last forever. Someday when the full number of the Gentiles has responded in faith to their privileged position, God will take away the blindness on Israel. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And so at this climax of these three chapters, Paul finally says that Jesus himself is going to change the hearts of Israel as a whole, and he's going to restore the nation of Israel, and he's going to save them as a nation, as a whole people. Not just a trickle of a remnant down through history, but the whole nation. And, and we can ask, well, you know, when will this happen? And Paul doesn't get into that here, but we could search the scripture for clues about that. And, you know, feel free to ask Michael or myself about those other places, and we would love to get into that with you guys. But to recap, Paul has responded to this question, what about Israel, by saying that, is God finished with Israel? Absolutely not. Is God righteous to do this to Israel, to set them aside for a time to bless the Gentiles? Absolutely. He is sovereign. Is he breaking his promise, promises to Israel? No. And we can trust God's promises to us, right? Because, no, God does not break his promises. And so Paul, um, to, re to outline Romans 11, Paul's answer to the question, what about Israel, is this. Not all Israel is true Israel. God is righteous to set the majority aside and to use them to show mercy to the Gentiles. But Israel is not rejected completely. There is still a remnant. And Israel is not rejected forever. And he will restore them one day and fulfill all his promises to them. And I just want to point out before um, we leave this point that uh, the theme of Romans is God's righteousness. And throughout the, the answer to how the gospel of Christ reveals the righteousness of God has been in Jesus Christ. How, how is God able to be the, both the ju just God and the justifier of sinful man through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? How has God, in justice and righteousness, made Israel stumble by placing Jesus in their midst, right? And how will Jesus 
how will God restore the nation of Israel? Will Jesus the Deliverer will come out of Zion and turn away ungodliness from Jacob? And Paul, to, to recap this section, says, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So once again, we can trust the promises of God. And so that's Romans 9 through 11. And so how, how do these three chapters help us to understand the whole Bible better? How, how do these serve as edge pieces to the jigsaw puzzle of the Bible? Well, um, just, just one example is that if God will literally fulfill his promises to the nation of Israel, we don't have to confuse Israel with the church, and we don't have to we don't have to reinterpret the promises made to Israel in the Old Testament and somehow apply them to the church. Um, and we can take the whole Bible literally and at face value. But more broadly than that, it, these chapters really show us that the Bible is not all about us, right? Um, the Bible is not all, not all of the Bible is to us, but all the Bible is for us. And not, the, the Bible isn't about us, but it is about Jesus. It is about the Lord. Um, and, and, and truly, um, getting to know more about Jesus is the best application we could have for any verse. So uh, I want us to have that attitude when we read the scriptures. Um, and as we piece together more and more of the Bible, I hope that we can, by the grace of God, rejoice with Paul and praise God as he does at the end of chapter 11. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. So I encourage you to dig through these chapters and read them uh, in one sitting before Michael dives in uh, in detail to chapter 9. They're, they're one cohesive whole, and the, the more you dive into these three chapters, the more you will um, get out of them, just like the rest of the Bible. Um, and so before you go to small groups, uh, snap, a, snap a cell phone picture of the screen before you go. I don't have any printouts for you, but I have some questions for you to think about tonight. In what ways have you felt that God was obligated to bless you based on something you did or where you came from? And in what ways have you questioned the goodness of God? How has God's word answered some of those questions? And specifically, how has Jesus answered those questions in your life? And if there is a future for ethnic Israel, according to Romans 11, what does that teach us about God or the rest of Scripture? How does this affect our attitude about our own nations or ethnic groups? And then finally, what has hindered you from putting the puzzle pieces of the Bible together to understand it as a whole? How does knowing the bigger picture help us to better appreciate God and what he has done for us? And so with that, um, I'm going to close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much that um, we have the privilege of being called friends because um, servants don't know what the master is doing, but you have called us friends, and you have revealed your plan to us. And we thank you so much that uh, you have shown mercy to us, not because of who we are or anything lovable in us, but because of who you are and that you are loving and that in your sovereignty you have chosen to bless even us. Um, and so, Lord, be with us tonight, uh, and may your Holy Spirit reveal even more of your word to us as we, as we look to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.